1983, Culture Club is at their creative and popular peak. And Malcolm McLaren is sort of at his creative and popular nadir. After a while, it just became too pedestrian. And I decided I wanted to get out. And the way to get out of this business was for me to become a singer. <laughs> oh, Buffalo guys go around the outside, round the outside, round the outside. Oh, Buffalo guys go around the outside and... For the purposes of talking about Culture Club, Malcolm McLaren starts out as a, as a fashion designer coming out of um, college, university. He has a store that sells teddy boy clothes. Um, this is during the mods and rockers sort of fallout from kids scrapping at the beach and you know the quadrophenia and all this stuff. He's got this store called Let It Rock, and he's running it with Vivian Westwood. And the two of them, as, as haberdashers and fashion designers, are some of the most cutting-edge people working in London at this time. And then you also, of course, have Jamie Reed, who becomes the designer that does the Sex Pistols artwork and the cut block letter um, kind of ransom note look that they had going. That's coming out of, of his ideas. Malcolm gets tired of the Teddy Boy thing because it's not a really great business position. These kids are obnoxious and tough and macho. Added to this, it's become a tired pose in terms of fashion. The Teddy Boy thing is, is coming to an end. Malcolm's proposition just before punk comes together is like bondage leather, sadomasochist clothing because that's even more antisocial than Teddy Boy, which has become such a passe fad. So he changes the name of Let It Rock to Sex in these giant pink letters down the King's Road. And that attracts the kids who are even more antisocial and you know reclusive, who become the basis of the Sex Pistols and the whole punk rock scene. Like the Bromley contingent, which is you know Susie and the Banshees and Billy Idol and all these other people. In his travels, Malcolm's gone to New York and he's talked his way into becoming the manager of the New York Dolls. By the time Malcolm meets the New York Dolls, they are completely off the rails. Johnny Thunders and, and David Johansson, everybody is just completely gacked with heroin, strung out, fucked up. They don't know where they are. It's just awful. <laughs> Because of that, they're completely open to any suggestion. And Malcolm's suggestion is, what's the most offensive thing you could do in America in 1976? Wear communist Russian clothing. And so he dresses them up in, in red leather and, and, you know, has the hammer and sickle everywhere. It might be shocking, but the band is just such a shambling wreck. And America is not really in a position to be destabilized by how crazy and liberal some New York art scene band is. America's too big and, and there's not enough of a national media fabric that Malcolm can penetrate to do anything with the dolls. But he is in New York for about a period of a, a year, or eight months or something, and he meets Bob Gruen and Baby Bull and all these other people who are on the scene making CBGBs, Richard Hell and all the Lower East Side squatters who sort of coalesce and form this swamp that you know becomes punk rock. All the things Malcolm wanted to do, he couldn't do them in America. But all the attitude and the fearless arrogance and abandon and, and please kill me, you know, of New York, that attitude is what he brings back. Uh, there's a lot of arguments about whether John Lydon, Johnny Rotten steered the fashion ship. Steve Jones has said that in um, the Sex Pistols documentary, The Filth and the Fury. He says, like, quote, It was definitely John who steered the ship into the way we looked. Which is pretty unlikely to me, 
to be blunt. Malcolm is a fucking fashion designer by trade. Vivian's there. You know, they have all these people who are, are students of situationism and, and Dada and all this fucking crap. But, you know, like anything else in fashion, punk and the pistols are completely passe by 1980. It's got a shelf life of like a year and a half, let's say. So along with Adam Ant and the whole new romantic thing that's come up out of punk's wake and is about androgyny and, and crazy clothes and dressing like a, a pirate... Uh, one of the big designers on this scene is Sue Klaus and, and her house, which she's called The Foundry. And uh, Boy George is basically her mannequin. Before he's even famous, you know, she's just throwing clothes on him because he's an outrageous cross-dresser and it helps her get noticed and, you know, he'll wear anything, basically. Just as instantaneous as Boy George's fame in Culture Club is Sue Klaus and The Foundry's fame as, as like, the unique fashion designer behind all of this crazy wardrobe that he's walking around in. It's the same relationship that you had with Malcolm McLaren, Vivian Westwood, and the Sex Pistols. And, and Malcolm is incredibly jealous that this has occurred. As Culture Club's moment starts to be over, Boy George, in a fit of like trying to find some renewed relevance, signs himself up with Stefan Rayner's new house, Boy London. All the while, while Culture Club was topping the charts, Boy London staged an absolute coup over all of Europe and Parisian fashion. It was one of those too-much-too-soon things, you know, typical story, and the brand Boy London sort of imploded in the mid-'80s. So you put this all together, right? 1983, Boy London's the biggest name in fashion, Boy George is the biggest name in pop, and Malcolm McLaren is just losing his fucking mind. He cannot bear this. One of the things he does to try and, you know, get this out of his system, he calls Alan Moore. And Alan Moore's writing The Watchman at this time. He writes League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, V for Vendetta. He's probably the most famous comics graphic novel author there is. And Malcolm pays him 30,000 pounds, which is like 100,000 US dollars in today's money. It's an astronomical amount of money to write a script for a film that will or will not be produced by a guy who has only got one film credit to his name. And this script is called Fashion Beast. So on the first page of Fashion Beast, one of the characters puts on a huge sweatshirt, an oversized puffy sweatshirt that says Tomboy on it in huge letters. Main character is called Dahl Seguin. It's a decent homophone for Annabelle Lewin. And she works as like a counter clerk. It's like this low, servile, working class gig she's got in this dystopian future where everything is lorded over by this like fashion lifestyle mogul called Celestine. And the Doll Seguin character has this off-on relationship with a character called Johnny. And the two of them sort of work under the kind of all-knowing eye of Celestine, trying to find their own identity and their own self-worth and, and their own sense of beauty. With this script recently being reissued as a graphic novel, with Alan Moore and, and Anthony Johnson and Malcolm working on it, it's being marketed as like a mashup of Beauty and the Beast and the life story of Christian Dior. The Christian Dior piece is the only real modern revision um, to the original script because Dior's life story is very tragic and there's a lot of Oedipal issues and things like that. And Malcolm has learned all of that in the intervening years here since Alan first wrote Fashion Beast for him. But every idea, every name, like every reference to anything in the original draft of the script is like 30 years old. And it's only informed by events that occurred 30 years ago, most of which concerned and upset Malcolm McLaren. If you read the original script and you know anything about punk rock and the new romantics and any of the projects that Malcolm was involved in, you know exactly what you're reading about. It's so obvious. Like every character... Every incident is in some way Malcolm trying to retcon himself as like this overlord who orchestrated all the events that allowed Annabelle Lewin, John Lydon, Boy George, Sue Klaus, Stefan Rainer, Sid Vicious, everything that ever happened in pop music or culture. 
1977 to 1983, through this script, Malcolm McLaren is like trying to take ownership over all of it, take credit for everything. He's looking down on everyone. And they're all beholden to him directly, indirectly, or just even inspirationally for everything they accomplished. Because the things that were getting noticed, the things that were famous and, and infamous by 1983, when Malcolm's lost his grip you know, on the pulse of, of fashion and media, he has nothing to do with them. He has no control. They succeeded on their own terms and through their own talent and effort. When Boy George becomes this massive international celebrity, on a, a level that the Sex Pistols never even came close to. And, I mean, the guy's on the cover of People. It's not just Rolling Stone. He was on the fucking cover of People magazine. That's a huge fucking deal in the 80s. That's like, that is the defining article of celebrity culture in America in, in the early and mid-80s. Getting on the cover of People magazine is the top of the mountain for American celebrity culture. So Malcolm and Vivian are just looking at this like, well, I knew them. They, they came to the shows, and he was, in, he was one of the first guys in Bow Wow Wow. Like, they, they, they owe this to me. This is all, I'm somehow involved in this. I made this happen. They didn't, you know? Sue Klaus and Boy George, they did it themselves. So while George has crossed over in America, there's a huge change going on in England with the music press. There's a couple of really critical books here that you should check out if you really want to know the kind of granular detail of, of this history. Uh, one's In Their Own Right, which is an oral history of um, the entire British music press under IPC and pre-IPC. And then a book that recently became available again by a veteran of this circuit, Dave Rimmer. And that book's called Like Punk Never Happened. It's explicitly about Boy George and about the newfound power and wealth. Everything that went on behind the scenes in those days was like, as luxuriant and just totally face-on opulent as it ever got. People love to tell you about like the arena rock of the 70s, Fleetwood Mac and Elton John and the Eagles, and everyone's walking around with like cowboy boots full of coke and all this shit. Yeah, th that was really crazy in terms of the illicit behavior that went on and, and how openly that behavior occurred and was encouraged. But in terms of money and power, that didn't happen until the 80s the record sales had gotten so astronomically high and MTV had become such an easy way to get an image and this mania, this celebrity mania around any new artist that you could get it done with such a lower overhead. You don't have to book like five night stands at some massive outdoor amphitheater to recoup. You can just sell records. You don't even have to leave your house except to do celebrity maintenance, you know, to go do the interviews on the celebrity talk shows and do the bumper carts for all the radio stations, you know, introducing the channel every hour or whatever. Everyone was working together in order to build up this established successful archetype, the pop star. On the other side of that was the biggest ever collection of just clueless young kids who loved to receive the product of this labor. It's a really interesting structure. It's like this huge ladder, right? And like great shit sort of flowed all the way down it. Like it was great to be a fan at the bottom because of the quality of stuff that came from the top on down. It was great to be a writer, great to be an editor, pop star, everything. Every aspect of the pop circus was functioning at its highest level for about five years there in the 80s. There were only a couple of publications who really had to worry about appearances or conflicts of interest. Is you know, Rolling Stone in America, and then in England, the New Musical Express. You know, you've got a reputation. It's not necessarily stodgy, but it's, it's one of authority, and just like Rolling Stone in America, and you've got some level of formality there. It's not anything goes. 
You're not like, yeah, some people probably did do coke off their desks, but not like constantly and openly. You weren't acting like these rock stars were acting. You, know, you are a business with disparate multiple accountability to publishers, to advertisers, and you know, there's editors. There are nine to five type people there who take their job seriously. So we, all these magazines have some structure to them. And that structure is really not that appealing when everything's so easy to do. Why do I have to go in there and deal with an editor who tells me that, you know, my material is not up to par? Or, you know, you haven't been here long enough. You know, you haven't paid your dues to get an interview with Culture Club or do a feature on Duran Duran. Go give me 1,500 words about Baltimore. There were so many records being bought. There was so much money. You didn't really have to have the structure. You could get the money in relatively short order from the eagerness of advertisers to advertise in music magazines because music was the biggest conduit for attention going. Music journalism had been around for long enough by the early 80s that there were tons of people who were either cast offs from the existing you know, major publications or just young kids who didn't want to bother with any of that and didn't have any of those raucous hang-ups about, you know, whether Duran Duran was really, you know, a bunch of poofs or Culture Club were just, you know, like the fag ends of punk rock. Y you believe pop music's important no matter what because this is your pop music. This is the pop music that's happening and making your social life so exciting. So that's the same thing that punk was for these editors who were looking down their nose at you. The first generation of these post-punk music critics, they just kind of were like, Fuck this, you know, like I'm tired of this fucking authenticity bullshit. Paul Morley fucking pissing and moaning about whether bands are fake or real or whatever. Just let's just have some fucking fun. John Savage was a very established writer at the time. I've quoted him in a number of these videos and podcasts. He he had a really great quote in the um, the New Order story documentary. He was talking about the transition from Joy Division into New Order after Ian Curtis committed suicide, and he said, "I'd have thought that if you went in such a dark direction, you know, like Joy Division." you'd want to go up, you know, like light. That analogy, you know, about how you go from, from closer, uh, you know, in the eternal to Blue Monday in like a year and a half. Recession moves on, the shouting is over. Raised to the glory of loved ones now gone. That speaks to the rest of pop music going from punk to Adam Ant in like eight months. If you read Like Punk Never Happened, you get such an insight into what was going on as these people who had survived punk and were really like the entire audience of most of these punk shows. You know, Shane McGowan and the Pogues, Boy George Morrissey, they were there celebrating all these punk rock bands and allowing them to take themselves seriously. You need that. You need that sense that there's an audience there that's reacting to what you're doing. You never grow as an artist because you, you're not confident enough and even arrogant enough to, to start thinking, you know, oh, I'm not going to play punk rock anymore. I'm going to play dub reggae. 
And my band's not a band anymore. It's a company. We're called Public Image Limited. And we issue products. We have business forecasts. We're going to start a television station. That kind of bullshit, that taking yourself seriously thing, half of it never happens. Half of it's just fucking pie in the sky nonsense, right? Because you just did too much blow. But the stuff that does happen is crazy enough in comparison with where you came from. You know, that radical change that you're able to make. That like 15 years later, every music critic is just going to be like, it was the boldest, most grave, incredible artistic statement anyone could have made at that time for John Lydon to turn his back on punk rock. And, you know, do pop tones or whatever the fuck. You know, no, it was just fucking total self-indulgence. That's all it was. Public Image Limited was the most fucking self-indulgent pile of shit that's ever happened. I fucking love it. Drive to the forest in a Japanese car. The smell of rubber on concrete tar. Inside does me no good. Standing naked in his back. And that's just one way to try and survive the kind of ethical failures of punk that you'd maybe believed in a little bit too much. But there's another way, which is to say, there's no shame in that other thing anymore. Pop music isn't the enemy. What was going on in pop music? Roxy music looked like they were having a lot of fun. Maybe I should try that. And that's how you get Adam Ant. Adam Ant wanted like 10 times the money. And that's not an exaggeration, it's a figure. He wanted 10 times the amount of money of any other musician at the time to have his photograph printed in your magazine. You know, because his photograph is what's going to sell the magazine. He over-leveraged his success hugely. And so as a result, the people who were keeping that success going, the trades and the music magazines, they just turned their backs on him. And, and once they do that, you're done. You know, Boy George never made that mistake. He never took the press for granted. He understood, just like Duran Duran, that, that being friendly with the press, giving them what they want, that's a transaction because they're the only ones who can give you celebrity. They're the only ones that can tell kids that, you know, you've come down from on high with this new incredible persona, image, music, etc. They're the ones who can make you bulletproof and make you a myth. You can't do it yourself. Even more than that, the press maintains that success for you. When you're, you know, too fucked up to get another record done and you're just dicking around in the studio for eight months and you have fucking nothing to show for it, that's when your publicist can call up Smash Hits and be like, hey, guys, let's do a little catch-up on Culture Club because you don't want people to forget about you. You only have so many ways you can do that without fucking releasing records. On the other side of that is the kind of bell curve of celebrity. Culture Club is the definitive example of this. They came out of these pin-up magazines and pop trash culture. But when you go from being on the cover of Smash Hits to being on the cover of People magazine, nobody can get you on the phone. 
it's not that you're ignoring them or that you've gotten too big for your boots. It's that literally you're backstage getting your fucking makeup done to appear on NBC's The A-Team. Hi, I'm Cowboy George. And I'm Boy George. Take your pick. Tuesday, The A-Team. Be there, Boy George. <laughs> From that peak, there's nowhere to go but down. Once you become a celebrity outside of music, you become like a pure personality. You've left music and music journalism behind, and, and the writers want nothing to do with you. This bit George in the ass, because after his drug addiction and everybody was just bored with his shtick, it, it spoiled the broth, right? Mainstream celebrity opportunities dry up real fucking quick when that happens. So in spite of this, well, more likely not really fucking getting it, Boy George, he plowed ahead in the late 80s. He had all these new looks. He was doing these crazy fucking outfits with Stefan Rayner. And he had these really terrible mid-tempo, you know, fucking Yamaha DX7 singles that nobody ever fucking heard. His attitude hadn't changed at all. He still thought he was a celebrity because he was, but he was a celebrity without any real juice or weight. You know, his attitude and his arrogance hadn't changed despite his circumstances. And this, like, didn't exactly endear him to the next generation of music writers he's pitching this crap to. You know, but for all these, these like mistakes and missteps and these embarrassing and, and even like just fucking despicable things that he did, um, you gotta say, the guy is his own man. He was such an egotistical, narcissistic person. You know, he was just, he was so anti authority. You just really couldn't stand groups of any kind. You know, despite the fact that so many people who, who have gone through the kind of life experiences he has, who struggle with sexuality, with transgender identity issues, you know, these are people who tend to run to groups to find solace, to find comfort and camaraderie because most of the rest of society shuns them or oppresses them or worse. But he never trusted organizational thinking of any kind. He had no use of it. What he had was celebrity. And when you're a celebrity, everybody wants you. They want to use your celebrity for their ends because it's more effective and it's easier than, than struggling for years and years to build like a foundation and overturn by number and outrage, you know, some unjust situation. All those people were screaming for Boy George. The, uh, the AIDS awareness, the gay right, everybody was screaming for Boy George. Everybody was trying to hand the ball off to him. Just, you know, it's all set. Here you go. Run with it. And, you know, he just turned them all down. It was all about him. I just, I think there's something to be said for that, you know, in the face of all the pressure, all the money and fame that was thrown at this guy, that he, he spent the entire 80s juggling all this shit to continue to go his own way, you know, in the late 80s and 90s, dark and depraved as it was for like a number of those years. The willfulness there is just, I just think that's punk as fuck. Stephen Run! Jump up! Mikey Green! Jump up! 